Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists, and I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. As a quick refresher on hepatitis C infection, it's estimated that at least 2 million people in the United States are living with chronic hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is primarily transmitted by blood-to-blood -blood contact. Most patients who contract hepatitis C are asymptomatic, both in the acute phase as well as through much of the chronic phase of infection. A lot of times when they develop symptoms, this is due to complications and progression of their liver disease. And that can include hepatocellular carcinoma and the syndrome related to decompensated cirrhosis. What you see on the current slide is the incidence of acute hepatitis C by age group in the United States starting in 2001 until 2016, which is the last year that we have data compiled like this. Um, and so basically these are the number of new cases that we have per year. And if you look, starting in 2010, the incidence has nearly quadrupled and there's been steady increases in incidence each year, particularly in people ages 20 to 29 and 30 to 39. And this increase is primarily driven by increased injection drug use related to the opioid epidemic that has been plaguing our country. So because of the increase in incidence and the shift in epidemiology to younger patients, it's prompted changes in screening guidelines. So prior to this year, the recommendation was that all individuals who are in what, were, what was known as the birth cohort, individuals born between 1945 and 1965, should be screened for hepatitis C at least once in their lifetime. They also recommended that people with ongoing risk factors should be tested periodically. Well, now that has changed. And so all adults, so anyone over the age of 18, should be screened at least once. And so this should be universal screening for all adults. Um, and then pregnant people should be screened during each pregnancy. And then as before, those who have risk factors for ongoing transmission should be tested periodically while those risk factors are present. One of the changes in the 2020 AASLD hepatitis C treatment guidelines is that if a patient is diagnosed with hepatitis C, we should treat them. It does not matter if they're in the acute phase or if they're in the chronic phase, they should be treated with direct acting antivirals. So how do we know what we're shooting for? Why are, we, why are the patients undergoing this treatment? Our goals of treatment are to prevent complications from hepatitis C infection and the associated liver disease to prevent clinical progression, so hoping that a patient will not progress to cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma as it relates to the hepatitis C infection, and then preventing death, both liver-related death as well as all-cause mortality. So those three goals are not SMART goals. They're very hard to measure, um, particularly in individual patients. And so we have a surrogate endpoint that we use to know if our hepatitis C treatment is successful. And that's known as the sustained virological response or SVR. SVR is de defined as an undetectable viral load 12 weeks after the end of treatment. And if a patient achieves SVR, then they are deemed to be cured of their hepatitis C infection. 
The good news is we have four treatment options that are available for patients who are living with hepatitis C infection. So what I've done is I've created this table to help my students remember which regimens are effective against which genotypes. You see that the regimen in pink and the regimen in blue is effective against all genotypes. We call that pan-genotypic. And then we have two other regimens that are effective against some of the genotypes that patients might have in their hepatitis C infection. All four of these regimens are listed as preferred by the hepatitis C treatment guidelines. Other things that you'll note is that treatment lasts about eight to 12 weeks. And so just a couple of months can be curative of their hepatitis C infection. Also, when I say these are effective, these are highly, highly, highly effective. We are looking at SVR rates in excess of 90%, sometimes higher than 95%. The good news is that they're, is that they're also well tolerated. The most commonly reported side effects are fatigue and headache, and a lot of patients don't experience any side effects. An additional bonus is that most of these regimens are one pill once a day. The one exception to that is the regimen in the pink, and that's three tablets once a day at, all at the same time. So very easy regimens to comply with and very well tolerated regimens, very effective regimens. A lot of times treat, uh, choice between these treatments is going to depend on insurance coverage as well as some other patient specific factors, including drug-drug interaction possibilities. The AASLD IDSA hepatitis C treatment guidelines provide guidance on how to monitor patients while they're receiving hepatitis C treatment. The shift in 2020 is really to draw a number of labs at baseline and then only monitor them or check them again if it's needed. For example, a CBC is recommended to be drawn at baseline and then only as indicated. So if a patient's hemoglobin is low when they begin, then we probably wanna check it while the patient is receiving treatment. A big shift is that there's no on-treatment viral load monitoring. So we're only gonna check the hepatitis C viral load at baseline and then at least 12 weeks after treatment, and that's to assess for SVR. And so I'll get to why that is in just a moment. The question regarding if we should be drawing viral loads while a patient is receiving hepatitis C treatment has been evolving over the last few years. For example, a colleague and I published a case series in gastroenterology in 2017. And this was five patients who received treatment for eight to 12 weeks and it was guideline concordant. So whatever the guidelines recommended at that point in time, that is what they received. We monitored their viral load every two weeks because that was part of our protocol. And all of these patients had a detectable viral load at the end of treatment. And you see the range there on the slide. So pretty low viral loads, but still detectable. And so there was a, a question at this time about if we should extend the duration of treatment if the patient had a detectable viral load at the end of treatment. At this point in time, it seemed like we should stop treatment because that's what was done in the randomized controlled trials. And so we did stop treatment. All five of those patients achieved SVR. So it started to raise some questions. Do we need to have those viral load checks while the patient is receiving therapy? Earlier in 2020, McKnight and colleagues published a retrospective cohort study of 363 patients. And what they were looking to see was if an extended duration of therapy 
would improve the chances of SVR over standard duration of therapy in patients who had a slow on-treatment response. And so all the patients who were enrolled in this cohort study had a detectable viral load at week four. 16% of their patients received extended duration of therapy. Most of the patients who received the standard duration of therapy were undetectable at week six, and most of the patients who received the extended duration of therapy were undetectable at week eight. What they found was that SVR was not different between the different durations of treatment. You see them listed there, they're very, very high, and they're not different at all. And so what this tells us between the the case series and this data is that there's really not any evidence to extend the duration of treatment over what has been um, established by the phase three randomized controlled trials. Um, and then also we don't need to be checking viral loads while the patient is receiving treatment. It seems to be that even if patients who have detectable viral loads during the course of treatment, they still are able to achieve SVR. And that might be because the direct-acting antivirals knock the viral load down pretty significantly, and then the patient's immune system is able to fight off the remaining virus that is there. So your key takeaways from this GEMS presentation is that all adults should be screened for hepatitis C at least once, and then on-treatment viral load monitoring is no longer recommended. Just keep going with treatment to that set duration of therapy and the patients will have a very high chance of achieving SVR. Gastrointestinal bleeding or GI bleeding is the most common condition leading to hospitalization in the United States. Upper GI bleeding can be classified as variceal bleeding or non-variceal bleeding. Common symptoms of an upper GI bleed include symptoms of overt bleeding, such as hematemesis, melena, or both. However, bleeding could be occult um, with symptoms of lightheadedness or syncope without overt bleeding. The most common cause of non-variceal upper GI bleed is chronic peptic ulcer disease, which could be the result of an H. pylori infection or the use of chronic or high-dose non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. The appearance of the ulcer at the time of endoscopy is a prognostic indicator for the risk of re-bleeding, and ulcers are classified based on the Forrester classification system. Forrest type 1A, 1B, which is an active bleeding of the ulcer, has the highest risk for re-bleeding at about 55%, followed by Forrest type 2A, which is a non-bleeding visible vessel with a risk of re-bleed at about 43%. Then you have type 2B, which is an adherent clot, it has a risk of re-bleed at about 22%. All of these are high-risk stigmatas. Forest type 2C, which is a flat pigmented spot, and forest type 3, which is clean-based, have the lowest incidences of re-bleeding and therefore treated with oral PPI therapy and no endoscopy. As you can see here, in the, within the GI lumen, we have different cells that secrete different substances that can be either protective or destructive. Um, your destructive substances could be hydrochloric acid, which is secreted by parietal cells, as well as pepsin, which is activated from pepsinogen, which is secreted by the chief cells. Protective substances like mucus and bicarbonate, which is secreted by the mucus cells, help to protect the lining of the stomach. Um, in an upper GI bleed, an acidic environment allows, number one, further activation of pepsin, which is a destructive factor, and number two, impairment of platelet function. So as the pH decreases, we lose clot stability. Proton pump inhibitors inhibit the sodium-potassium HPase pump, or the proton pump on those parietal cells, to inhibit that gastric acid secretion. And our goal is to increase the pH to limit the acid harming effects and stimulate hemostatic integrity in order to lead to ulcer healing. The American College of Gastroenterology, or ACG, guidelines on ulcer bleeding was published in 2012. 
And then I also have listed the European Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy Guideline or ESGE guideline on non-variceal upper GI bleed that was published in 2015. Both guidelines recommend high dose PPI continuous infusion. So that is um, defined as 80 milligram bolus followed by eight milligram per hour continuous infusion for both pre and post endoscopy treatment. The ESGE guidelines go a little bit further to suggest intermittent PPI therapy or high-dose oral PPI therapy. However, these are weak recommendations due to the variability in the studies, as well as the lack of multiple studies and generalizability when it came to oral therapy. So the clinical debate is what is the evidence for intermittent PPI therapy post-endoscopy? Plain and colleagues conducted a meta-analysis in 2009 assessing the use of standard therapy, so that's that bolus followed by continuous infusion PPI. The studies included patients with high-risk stigmata, so those active bleeding, non-bleeding visible vessel, or an adherent clot at endoscopy. There were 12 studies they looked at. Five of those studies assessed um, intermittent IV or oral PPI therapy versus placebo or no treatment and found no significant differences except for further bleeding. However, variable doses were used. And in this meta-analysis, the studies that they used um, were conducted in the Asian population, which could be a pharmacogenetic limitation, given that about 15 to 20% of the Asian population are poor metabolizers of CYP2C19 um, versus only about 3% of the European population. So CYP2C19 is what metabolizes your proton pop inhibitors. So these patients could have had possibly higher exposure to the drug, therefore improved outcomes. Three of the studies looked at standard therapy versus histamine 2 receptor antagonist and found no significant differences. And four studies looked at standard therapy versus placebo or no treatment. And in this, they found a statistically significant difference across the board in all parameters, including mortality. However, individual studies cited for mortality reduction, although individual, although beneficial, did not show a difference in mortality. And authors did conclude this could possibly be a reduction that was shown within Asian populations. Um, the authors concluded that bolus followed by continuous infusion IV PPI for 72 hours showed more consistent results. However, they did state a need for further research. And these, this meta-analysis was used to support the recommendations within the 2012 guidelines. Satchel and colleagues performed a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2014 after the uh, ACG guidelines were published. And they looked at assessing the efficacy of intermittent versus the standard PPI post-endoscopy and those um, high-risk stigmata patients. This was a non-inferiority analysis. There were 13 studies included in this analysis, with 10 of those studies assessing recurrent bleeding within seven days. And out of those 10 studies, only one study reported a statistically significant difference favoring intermittent therapy. Regarding the primary outcome, which was recurrent bleeding within seven days, um, the Risk ratio was 0.72. That was a one, with a one-sided 95% confidence interval, upper boundary of 0.97. Um, the absolute risk difference was negative 0.28%. That is actually below the preset non-inferiority margin of 3%, thereby demonstrating non-inferiority. There was no evidence of statistical heterogeneity found. Now, by looking at this data, we would assume that intermittent therapy is equally comparable to continuous infusion for high-risk stigmata post-endoscopy. However, there are other considerations to also address. In regards to the population, um, uh, the population assessed within these studies, all of the studies the authors stated were performed in Asia. There were three in Korea. The others were in Taiwan, India, China, Thailand, and Turkey. And as I stated previously, this may be a pharmacogenetic limitation. There was also a variability in doses and routes used, and studies were variable quality, 
with potential risk of bias in the studies, but again, subgroup analyses that they did showed no evidence of significant hetero heterogeneity related to that risk of bias. In regards to standard therapy, there was another meta-analysis um, that was published by Newman and colleagues in 2013, and they looked at randomized controlled trials that compared two different regimens of the same or a different PPI in patients with acute peptic ulcer bleeding diagnosed endoscopically. Um, the primary outcome was death from any cause within 30 days of randomization or at the reported time point closest to that 30 days. Secondary outcomes included rebleeding, surgical intervention, and further endoscopic hemostatic treatment. 22 studies were included in, within this meta-analysis, which is more than the other two. Um, 13 of those studies compared high-dose versus non-high-dose PPI regimens um, with one of those reported outcomes of interest they were looking at. It is important to note that five of the studies um, were included in meta-analysis that have been previously discussed. And what they found was in regards to mortality, um, 12 studies assessed this outcome, found no significant difference with um, a, relative, a pooled relative risk of 0.85. But when it came to rebleeding surgery and further hemostatic treatment, our pooled relative risk was 1.27, 1.33, and 1.39 respectively. And this is opposite of what you would expect. And the authors actually addressed this, and this could be due to the high risk of bias. Um, there was a high risk of bias within the studies and uh, possible inverse publication bias. Um, overall, in all um, parameters, the quality of evidence for these outcomes was low due to study limitations and imprecision. They did do a meta-regression analysis um, demonstrating no significant difference between outcomes and the subgroups. And especially important, they looked at geographical locations, so Asia versus non-Asia, as well as PPI route. The authors did include, conclude that there was insufficient evidence for concluding superiority, non-inferiority, or equivalency of high-dose PPIs over lower doses. And so they concluded that standard high-dose IV PPI therapy was favored in patients with serious bleeding for apeptic ulcers. So this is kind of conflicting um, the SATAR um, meta-analysis that was previously discussed. So in conclusion, the use of proton pump inhibitors are effective to reduce gastric pH in order to stimulate hemostatic integrity. Guideline-directed management recommends the use of high-dose intravenous PPI agents versus inter intermittent or oral agents. Meta-analyses conducted have shown conflicting data um, when we were looking at intermittent PPI compared to standard therapy. There were a lot of study limitations that we saw. The risk of bias was high, the population studied, and variable dosing that was used. The 2012 ACG guidelines are currently being updated, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ACHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.